right. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, morning. Thank you for being here. <clears throat> this morning, we're going to talk about a subject that impacts us all one way or another. This topic involves incredible joy, some heartache, a little trial and error at times, tons and tons of laughter, some tears, and lots of sleepless nights. We're going to talk about parenting. <laughs> Amen to that, right? <clears throat> This morning, we're going to be looking at both the Old and the New Testament, and we're going to take a look at what God wants us to know about being a godly parent and raising a godly child. So now as we begin, <clears throat> you might be doing right now what I did as I started to work on this teaching, is go through your mind, all the Bible verses, anything that might be related to parenting, raising kids, and kind of, okay, what was this? Okay, remember that? Remember that? And you start to mend that, blend that with things that you've actually learned on your own as being a parent, <clears throat> things you did well things maybe you didn't do that well, <clears throat> excuse me, and you put that all together in a little package, right? Well, for a moment, what I want you to do is forget all of that. <laughs> Just forget about it. Don't worry about it. Let it go. We're going to start fresh with what God wants us to do, what he wants us to know. And I think you're going to be surprised at how good and how on point his advice is. The first thing, the first thing that God wants us to know involves us as individuals. We cannot begin to think about being a parent raising a child until we are solid in our own faith. We can't, right? So this is the first part. This is what God tells us. It's in Deuteronomy 6.5. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now that may seem surprising at first when we think about parenting, but in a moment you're going to agree this is the best place to start. <clears throat> if we aren't solid in our own faith, if we don't have our own solid foundation with God where he's the center of our life, what sort of foundation are we going to build our family on? What's it going to be? And unfortunately, there's a lot of families that start off that way. They don't know. They don't have an answer. And that's really, really important when you do introduce kids into the family. And as they begin to grow, kids watch and they see how you act, how you behave. What do you do when things are going well? What do you do when things are not going well? What do you do when you're scared? What do you place your trust in? What do you do when you think nobody's watching? See, all of that is a lesson to the kids, whether you intend it to or not. You, for instance, you can tell your kids, money doesn't matter. Don't focus on money. All the while, everything over here, everything you do is about your bank account, having the biggest cars, the biggest houses. It doesn't matter as much what you say as what you do and how you live. Here's another good way to think about it. What if by the time all kids were 16, someone pulled them aside and said, I want you to tell me what's most important in your parents' life. Now, you don't get to answer that question. They answer it for you. What would your kids say? What would your own children say about you? And if, you, if your kids aren't 16 yet, the ones that are little, from this day on, until they turn 16, what would they learn each day about you? What's most important in your life? How would they answer that for you? And let's be honest, kids can be very, very insightful. And believe it or not, there was a child in the 9 a.m. service when I asked that question, it went like this. My mom thinks blah, blah, right in the middle of everybody. It happened. Sitting right over there. And again, let's be honest, kids are smart. They pick up on things. And regardless of what you say, what would they say about you? That's what's important. The way you live your life 
is an incredible lesson for your kids. So again, when we begin to talk about parenting, the best place to start is first with ourselves. What do we believe? The reason God said, love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, is that it starts us off on the right foot. It gives us a solid foundation. Because without a solid foundation, kids will see right through that. The other reason why this is important, the other reason if we put God at the center of our life and we trust in him no matter what, this shows two extremely important things to kids. Let's look at that now. Next slide, please. Number one, God is real. He's real. That's what kids are going to learn from you. And number two, just as importantly, if you, the parent, truly trust God, then they can truly trust him as well. When things get rough, lose your job, maybe lose your house, get a bad diagnosis, when something bad happens and you abandon everything and you're like freaking out, what did you just teach your kids? You can't trust God. If we stay focused and you trust God, kids will learn that as well. The next step in God preparing us to be good parents is that we need to have a godly Christian marriage. First, we need to be committed and have a strong faith ourselves. Next, our marriage needs to be grounded in faith as well. There's a couple of verses we're going to look at now from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the next one, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So what do we see? We see that we're supposed to submit to each other and love each other the way God loves his church. That's that's huge. Then in our marriage, the two people become one. They are no longer two people. I want you to think about that for a second. Why do so many marriages end in divorce? There's a lot of reasons, but in my experience, there's two main reasons. Number one, the marriage is not based on a foundation of faith, where God is the third person in that marriage. I've been married 21 years. Believe it or not, there have been a number of times my wife wanted to strangle me. Can you believe that? Me. (laughs) Marriage is tough. I don't care how awesome the person is you're living with. If you live with someone for a long period of time, you're eventually going to get on each other's nerves, right? It happens. We need to be patient, loving, forgiving. Love each other the way Christ loved the church. That's powerful stuff. We need help doing that. The other thing, as a couple, you need to pray together. It will make you stronger. When people don't have God in their their marriage, when they don't pray together... What I see happening is what's okay, what's normal, is what society says is okay. And that is all across the board what is acceptable. Good and bad are relative, and that is a horrible way to have a marriage. The other thing I see when, that contributes to divorce is when two people get married, they stay independent. They're like long-term roommates. And that is not at all how God intended it. You actually become one. When one person is hurting, both people hurt. When the marriage has problems, both people need to work on that. They need to support each other, provide for each other's needs, do life together. And the reason that is important is if you as a couple can't handle the ups and downs of life, how are you going to treat your 
Teach your child to do that. When we do that well, when children see that God is the center of our marriage and we can handle ups and downs, then we can be a good parent and train them to do the same. Let's look at this next verse, Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 7. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Now, the commandments we're talking about is the Ten Commandments. We've heard those before. What Moses is saying, think about it, this is not meant to be like one simple, quick discussion. Like this is how you work the microwave and then you move on. This is meant to be part of who we are. We talk about it when we go to bed at night, when we get up. Throughout our day, it's simply like the air we breathe. And the instruction shouldn't be generic, like this is how you pass your driver's license test, right? This is how you handle life. This is what it's about. Moses is saying these laws are meant to be part of our life every day, morning and night. We teach them to our kids. And Moses specifically mentions talking about them in our home because that's our home. That's part of who we are. It's where we go at the end of each day, where we reconnect. If it's part of who we are, it's part of our life. Our home represents us. And we're going to have difficult times. Our kids should see us work through our problems at home, asking God for help. Because let's be honest, kids have their own problems, right? And sometimes their problems, they seem small to us, but to them, it's huge. It's, It's monumental. We need to help them work through their problems as well. They need guidance and they need understanding. The extreme danger there is if we don't teach our kids the commandments. If we don't talk about them in our home, they don't learn them. And then they learn from the outside world what's right and what's wrong. And that does happen. That happens a lot. They're going to learn with what they can get away with. That's the truth. They will learn how much they can get away with. They'll learn that, well, maybe it's okay to get caught as long as you can get off later. You ever heard the old adage that crime doesn't pay? You know that's not true, right? Crime does pay. And in this country, white-collar crime pays very well. At most, you get off with a slap in the wrist. If we don't teach our kids what's right or truly right or wrong, they're going to learn it from the world. Unfortunately, a lot of kids learn that way. So now that we've established that we need to teach our kids and make it part of our everyday lives, let's get specific about what those commands are. Like, what do they need to know? Like, here's an example. Do they, do they need to know all Ten Commandments? Can anybody here rattle them off real quick? Or should they be able to recite them? Do they just need to have, a, like, a general idea? Well, thankfully, Jesus was an amazing teacher, and he answered this question for us. It's in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, 35 to 40. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first. That's the greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's what's cool, verse 40. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. I want to pause for a second. Let's look at why what Jesus said is so good. 
First, Jesus was being tested, put to the test by a religious law expert. That was his gig. This wasn't like a weekend warrior like something you see on Facebook saying, you know, the earth is flat. Right? This is someone, this is like a Harvard law expert having a debate about a a topic in the law. This law expert looked at Jesus and says, which one is the greatest? They had a lot of them. That's a really, really good question. It really is. It was dynamite. So Jesus said, the first one, love God with everything you are, your heart, your soul, and your mind. Just love him. The second one, love your neighbor just like yourself. If you do that, you have everything else covered. That's a beautiful lesson. That's huge. Now here's what's interesting and a little sad. Us humans also like to find loopholes. Situations they may not apply. People we may not want to show as much kindness to as we should. Because there was a discussion later where another religious expert says, like, I don't know who my neighbor is. Who is my neighbor? Like, you know what that means, right? Let's say, these are my neighbors, and these are my neighbors I don't like so much. I don't want to have to be as kind to them as I did these people. So he's saying, who is my neighbor? I don't know. That's a loophole discussion. And that discussion is where Jesus teaches about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, everyone thinks they have a good understanding of that parable, and some people do, but no, very, very rarely do people go as far with it as Jesus did, as Jesus intended. And the reason is because the group of people that he's talking about, the Samaritans, they don't mean anything to us. Like, literally, the word Samaritan has no value. Anybody here a Samaritan? Anybody know a Samaritan? Here's an example. Turn to your neighbor and call them a Samaritan. Say it. Anybody get offended? Anybody get offended? Anybody be like, yes, I'm a Samaritan. Doesn't mean anything, right? What does it mean? Most people have no idea what a Samaritan is. That's why we miss the big concept, what Jesus was talking about. Samaritans actually are an ancient race of people uh, that claim to be from the tribe of Israel. And they believe in the same God, but here's the, where they differed. They believed the holy temple should be built on a Mount Gerizim, and they built their own holy temple right there. And the Israelites built another temple on Mount Zion, which is where the temple was, one we've always heard about, you know, with the altar and all that kind of stuff. When we have two competing temples. The Israelites didn't like that. were always bigger and more powerful. And guess what happened in 120 B.C.? Who burnt down the Samaritan's temple? Burn it to the ground. The Israelites. Israelites. And how does one religious community usually take it when someone burns down their church? Not well. They are enemies. They've been enemies. And I actually found, believe it or not, in the 1800s, a rabbi, Jewish rabbi, wrote, it is better for Jews to eat bacon than to eat bread made by a Samaritan. In the 1800s, they said this. 1,800 years after Jesus Christ. There is some serious enmity between the groups. There always have been. And yet the story goes in the Good Samaritan. A man was walking along, got beat up, left lying in the, dying on the side of the road. Priest walks by and goes, Levite comes by and goes, Third person comes by. 
A Samaritan. Picks him up, puts him on his horse, takes him to an inn, pays the innkeeper to take care of him. Says, I'll come back and I'll pay you for whatever's needed. Now, this is what this would look like today. Is there a group somewhere in the world that would love to burn our church down? Usually Muslim extremists, right? That's a quick one, easy one to go to. So let's say a Muslim extremist group comes through Sebastian, burns our church to the ground. To the ground. Just smoke and rubble. There's nothing even left. Then he's walking down the road, and he gets hit by a car, gets beat up, and he's laying there on the side of the road. How many people would walk by and go, boy, that dude deserved it? Totally deserved it. How many people like, get your pitchforks, go! How many people would stop, pick him up, drive him down to Sebastian River Medical Center, check him in, and then go to the business office and say, whatever the bill is, I want you to give it to me. I will pay for it. The man who burnt down our church. Do you feel the heaviness of what Jesus was talking about? He was talking about a radical, mind-blowing type of love that the world does not know. And that's the kind of stuff that got him in trouble with the religious authorities. He was saying, I want you to love people in a way people don't ever know, the way I love people. That is a huge, difficult parable. But that's the love we need to have. And that's the love we need to teach our children. Not the kind that's easy, like, you know, my neighbors, guess what? They all look like me. They all go to church. Our kids play together. We look and eat the same. We listen to the same kinds of music. Sometimes I think we should um, retranslate that Bible verse because the word neighbor in modern-day English means something extremely specific, where Jesus meant everybody, including the people that wanted to do you harm. And that is a powerful, powerful message. So again, we need to love God the way he intended. We need to love our neighbor the way he intended. And Jesus said... The law, everything that's in the Bible, everything the prophets talk about, hang on those two commands. Do them well, and you got everything covered. Love God, love your neighbor. Walk that path. And we need to teach our kids to do the same. That is a beautiful teaching. The next thing we need to teach our children is the true meaning of repentance and forgiveness. Now, you guys may have been there. I know I certainly was when I was younger with my brother. When we would fight, we grew up with our cousins. We grew up in a small town in Illinois, and there's a whole mess of us, and my poor mom had to deal with all of it sometimes. But she'd grab us. She'd grab my shirt or grab my brother's shirt or my cousin. And, Stop! Now you say you're sorry. Now you say you're sorry. What did you do? Sorry. <laughs> and as soon as she walked out of the room, what happened? Back, I was on my brother and I had him in the headlock. Vice versa. There's a huge difference between sorry and what? Forgiveness. Like Forgiveness. Our kids need to learn the difference. And I, and I tell you this, this is one of the things that I've learned. At a, uh, they didn't teach it in, in seminary, but I learned just through practice. The hardest thing I've had to do is get one grown adult, say for you, one grown adult to truly forgive another adult that has wronged them. And I mean wronged them. It's legit. I've had several people say, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. I'm not raising myself at all. That is true. It is, it is very hard, but we must forgive. We must teach our kids to take responsibility for their actions. 
to repent and to forgive others. And if we want forgiveness, we have to forgive others. Let's look at this verse in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 14 to 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That's great. We all know that part, right? Here's the hard part. But if you do not forgive others their sins, you guys finish it. What's it say? I didn't write that. Jesus said that. If you don't forgive others, your Father won't forgive you. So just like understanding what it truly means to love our neighbor, we need to understand that in order to be forgiven, we have to forgive others. We cannot claim for ourselves the prize of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness if we're not willing to forgive the way he forgave us, the way he loved other people. And it's not like that because I said it. It's because he said it. We need to live out that type of forgiveness. Our kids need to see us forgive people that have wronged us. And I would argue that's one of the most important things your kids can see you do. They need to see their parents admit when they're wrong. They need to see us repent and seek forgiveness. And there's times, believe it or not, as perfect as I seem up here, <laughs> I've come home from work and I've been tired, it's late, and guess what? I took something out on my wife. Totally not her fault. Can you believe that? I've done that before. <laughs> and my kid saw it. So what should I do as a good Christian man, or as a Christian man trying to be better? I need to own up to it. I need to say I'm sorry and ask for forgiveness so my kids can see me do that too. That you're going to have those days. You're going to be frustrated. She's going to be frustrated. You're going to be other. But you own up to it. And you have a healthy marriage. Kids need to see that. Our kids should also learn there's no room for vengeance, retribution, or getting even. They should never learn or see that that's acceptable. They should see us pray. They should see you and your spouse pray together. They need to see that. They need to see you take on difficult issues and pray and then wait for God's answer. They need to know that God answers quickly and sometimes a painfully long time it takes him to answer but he will answer. In one of the more unique Bible verses regarding prayer, it actually happens in Luke 11. And it's when the disciples, they actually asked Jesus, well, how, how do we pray? How do we pray? Teach us how to pray. You know, and you, when you read that, you might think, well, this is like very early on in them being disciples. Like day one, Jesus says, you're my disciples. And then they say, great, teach us how to pray. But it didn't actually happen that way. This happened in Luke chapter 11, where they say, teach us how to pray. The truth is, they'd already been with him for a bit. That's in Luke 11. In Luke 9, Jesus sends them out to cast out demons and heal the sick. And they do. Then they come back. Two chapters later, they say, teach us how to pray. I want you to wrap your heads around that for a second. Let's say everybody here, and I mean everybody here, has the power to cast out demons, like demons. Like you ever seen that movie, The Exorcist? Demons. Let's say everybody here has the power that God gave you to heal sickness. We can go down to the hospital and you can heal people. And you do that all day long. You're banging out home runs. At the end of the day, how many people would go, you know what, I need to learn how to pray better. See, that, 
the idea is if you get to that point, all of us think, man, I'm level 10. We are rocking it. Right? Awesome. Woo. Right? The disciples never stopped. They went back after that and said, teach us how to pray the way you do. Help us be better. Our kids should always see us try to improve. I don't care where you're at in your faith. They should always see you try to pray deeper and longer and learn more and be a better Christian. That's the message from that. They should never see us get content or lazy or comfortable. They should catch you. Here's the thing. They should catch you in your prayer time. Like there's a spot in, 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 our, in my room we have a, you know, uh, there's a little rug next to the side of the bed, and that's where I kneel and pray. And my kids have opened the door. Whoa. And I'm praying, and that's okay. They should see that. The other thing our kids need to learn is a love of reading the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful, look at this, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that every servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for good work. The point of this verse is to say it's normal, it's expected to use the Bible to train and to teach. It is. That's what it's for. That includes our children. That's why here in this, in this church we always say, take out your Bibles, get your Bibles out. Who's got your Bibles? Right? That's why we put it up there. We want you to know. We want you to read it for yourself. And so there's a double purpose. The more you do it, the more your kids are going to see you do it. That is normal. They should see you reading and asking questions. Like, what does this mean? You should be taking out your phones and going, Hey, Siri, what's a Samaritan? To do that, you need to turn off mode. Totally true. Saturday night, that did not happen. 9 a.m., it happened. And I'm like, what? Well, see, my, uh, it's on airplane mode, so it won't actually look it up. But you should be pulling out your phone and going, what does this mean? Because the truth is, the Bible, did you know this? The newest stuff is 2,000 years old. The newest stuff. And it was written on the other side of the world, translated through several different languages. They talk about stuff we have nothing to do with. Holidays, food, people's names, concepts we don't have anything to do with. You're going to read that and be like, what is that? What does that mean? If you read the Bible and never do that, you are not reading the Bible. You need to go back. Just like now, we talk, a little bit ago, we talked about the Samaritans. Did you know the Samaritans actually still exist? They're a very small community, only a couple thousand that live outside of Tel Aviv, and they speak Aramaic. That's the language Jesus spoke. How many times have you heard the parable of the Good Samaritan? You didn't know that. Yeah. Never stop learning. Never stop asking questions. Our children need to see us do that. When your children see your Bible, this is my favorite. When they see it, they should see little tabs coming out of it. They should see marks all over it, highlights, things like that. That means a Bible is being used. Remember, that, and we also talked about the disciples, after they cast out demons, after they healed people, they went back and learned to pray better. They were always improving. They should always see us do that. Now, there's two final points I want to make, and they kind of round out this teaching on parenting. The first one is in regards to the fifth commandment. You may remember God gave us 10, and this one is number five on that list. It's Exodus 20, 12. Honor your father and mother so that they may live, 
so that you may live long in the land your Lord has given you. This command is the only one that is directed at children. Now, as even as an adult, I'm still a child to my parents, so it's still directed at me. But this command is that it's unique and specifically for kids. And the Greek word for honor means to revere, to prize, or to value. So God is directing kids not just to listen and obey, but to hold up their parents as something valuable, with great honor, a treasure. Now here's the catch, though. We're required to live a godly life. God gave us the Ten Commandments because he knows that we're going to sin, that we're going to fall away, we're going to do things we shouldn't. So children are not to follow their parents and honor them if they're heading off in the wrong path. But a parent that stays strong, that learns, that grows in their faith, is worth and deserves honor from their kid. That's our responsibility. And that's what we're called to do. We should be leading a Christian lifestyle. We should be teaching them that. Parents that make a stand in this world for Jesus Christ are an example to their kids. And I would argue, especially nowadays, we really, really need that in this world. Now, here's an interesting point regarding this command. It's number five on the list. Did you know it actually comes before the command to not murder people? Doesn't that sound funny? That sounds weird. Like, it, I always thought when I first read the Ten Commandments, like, that should be number one, don't kill people. But in the order of commands, it tells us to first have no other gods. Don't take God's name in vain. He means don't make my name cheap and useless. Make it special. He says, honor the Sabbath. One day a week, don't work. Spend it with me and your family. And he says, honor your father and mother. You see, all that's directing us to God first, then to be godly parents to our kids so that they have faith too. And then the rest, all that other stuff, is easy if we're doing the others. It's easy. And we do that. That's when kids have a real chance. Now, the other thing is, because those are commands, we do need to hold our children to boundaries. Those, those commands are meant to be guide rails. We need to be taught to stay within them. It's okay to discipline your kids. I'm not advocating for or against spanking at all. I don't even get into that. You tell you, when I was little, there was a couple times I needed it and it worked. Believe it or not. But my kids, I, I got three. Two of them, just a stern look. A stern word, and that was all it took, and they understood. My third one, a little more sometimes. But kids will try to rebel somewhat, won't they? Test limits? They will. They're growing. They want to know what the, how far they can get away with stuff. It's our job to set that limit. But then also explain why with love and understanding. They're smart. They can understand. And regardless of what we do, we need to teach them that God's laws, his commands are not legalistic. They're not blind. God gave them to us because he loves us. and He cares for us. And this world is a better place. Can you imagine, just for a moment, regardless of what people believe, can you imagine what the world would be like if everybody just followed the Ten Commandments? Just followed them. Can you imagine how much more joy and happiness and lack of sorrow there would be in this world? So again, the way we live our lives is the best lesson a child could ever get. Now the last verse I want to share is from Titus chapter 2, verse 7 to 8. This kind of brings it all together. 
Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may, not, may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Again, the point of this is to drive home the importance of living out, modeling good Christian life. A life that demonstrates integrity, where we're true and we are honest, where we don't have loose talk or exaggerate the truth. And children need to see that. So now as I finish, we're going we're gonna to say our prayer. And in that prayer, we're going to pray for all the parents here and all the future parents. We're going to pray for you to be leaders and examples, the ones that you could be. We're also going to pray for kids to grow one day into the disciples that they were created to be. And if anybody here has not accepted Jesus Christ into your life, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. All you have to do is say the words I say right there in your seat. You can do it quietly. It's between you and God. But let's pray together. Jesus, this morning we pray for all the parents here and all the people who will one day become parents. I ask you to place your commands on their hearts. Let your words and your teachings be a light for their feet and a guide for their path in life. May they live a life that makes you proud, a life that is honorable and full of patience and love and forgiveness, a life that will be a great example for their children. Today we also pray for the children. We pray that they will come to know you and to love you, that they will see what it means to be a Christ follower through their parents, and that they will one day follow in those same footsteps. Father, guide us all to be good examples of your love in this community. And may many, many others come to know and love you through this church. And Father, I believe, I believe in your son, Jesus. Today, I ask you to come into my life and make me new. I am not worthy of you or the forgiveness or the salvation you bring, but I still come before you. Help me, change me, make me more than I am. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Help me to trust you and lean on you with all my hopes and all my fears. Be with me through all life's ups and downs. Lay out your path before me and lead me to a new life, the one you have planned for me. Thank you for loving me and giving me this life that I have. In Jesus' name, amen.